Good morning. You are listening to Capital Chat on KNY. I am your host, Jordan Lewis. And joining me today, I have Mandy Massey as well as guest Tony Hoffman for the Pillars of America Speaker Series. How are you both doing this morning? Doing great. Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks. Now, obviously, the big talking point of today would be you, Tony. You're here for the Pillars of America series. And so let's first talk about, because really it's talking about sort of your story. So how would you like to start? You know, my story is really uh, about mental health, the struggles I had when I was younger with that, but not really being able to identify that and how that was kind of the foundations or precursor for me to start experimenting with substances to try and self-medicate my struggles. And uh, I'm here to talk about that, kind of bring the truth and connect how mental health is directly connected to substance use, kind of break some stigmas that surround uh, substance use and mental health, and then obviously give the inspiration that you can go from extremely dark places like I was in with my homelessness and incarceration uh, to being able to find peace within yourself, manage your mental health, and even do great things like go to the Olympics. Okay. And so why don't we start sort of start at the beginning? Because obviously this is sort of so the general public can kind of get a tease of the show. Because obviously the Pillars series itself, those are things that people have to buy tickets for. Mm-hmm. And so why don't you just sort of start, with the, start at the beginning with me? Yeah, so I was, I, I was raised in the middle of California. I tell people there's no beach where I'm at. Uh, my backyard was an almond orchard for many years. Uh, but in this small part of the Central Valley of California was Clovis Unified. That's where my parents moved, so I would... Uh, get a strong education along with my brother and while I was there I found my my safe space was in sports competing in sports I was very good at sports Uh, but by the time I was in middle school I really started to struggle with my with my mental health and but like I said that wasn't something that I could identify I didn't know how to uh, identify my emotions and what those meant I just knew that I was extremely uncomfortable by the time I was in middle school okay and so in in in, in, what, in what ways did that sort of make you feel uncomfortable? I mean, I've talked with multiple other guests sort of about mental health and some of the struggles with that. But maybe if you give me a sort of an example that could help the listener kind of relate more. Sure. Yeah. So I uh, I didn't know I had social anxiety. So which may not make sense because I'm a speaker, but for the most part, I still will stay to myself. I'm very introverted. Uh, but when I it started to experience my social anxiety when I was in middle school. I didn't like being around people. I didn't know how to make friends with other people. I wasn't talking to the girls like a lot of middle schoolers started doing. And I started to get real confused and think that something was wrong with me, which really was one of the big reasons that led me to a place where I thought that killing myself would be the answer because I couldn't stop myself from feeling uncomfortable. I didn't know how to do that. I wanted to be normal or what I thought other people got to live life was, and that was void of these uncomfortable emotions that I was having. Okay. And I'm, gl- I'm glad you touched on the, the social anxiety aspect because I feel like that's one that oftentimes kind of gets, I don't want to say move to the side, but oftentimes a lot of when folks talk about mental health, they'll talk a lot about depression or suicidal tendencies, but they don't talk about some of the other things that kind of go into play there. Sure, sure, yeah. You know, for me, it started with social anxiety. Then it was isolation. And then once I started to isolate and spend more time by myself and not have conversations about what I was experiencing, because that really was ultimately the first step to healing for me, was to have a conversation in a trusted space where somebody could help me manage what I was experiencing and help me change the perspective about what I was experiencing. And so when I started 
started to isolate, that was when the depression started to come into my come into my life, and that really took away my motivations um, and drive to even be a part of the gifts that I had because I felt so overwhelmed with my anxiety. Then it came isolation. Then when the isolation came, then you kind of get the products of what depression can do, and then the depression is really what gave way to the self hatred and the suicidal ideation. Okay. And so, and then moving sort of on, and so obviously you started dealing with that in, in middle school. Going beyond middle school, how did that start affecting you during like your high school years? Yeah, the high school years were actually the biggest parts of my struggle. You know, as we age, our mind becomes more cognizant of reality that's around us, and we become more emotional. We start to feel our emotions uh, more heavily, um, but we also create stories about what these emotions mean. And depending on the stories we create, we find ourselves in a place of self-limitation or self-empowerment. And for me, the social pressures of everything I was experiencing in high school were now multiplied in comparison to when I was just starting to become cognizant and feeling of my emotions when I was in middle school. So my depression was actually at an all-time high despite being on the cover of a magazine in 2002. My self-hatred was at an all-time high and my anxiety obviously, uh, like many other students, was at an all-time high. I just had no idea how to manage all of that. It just, uh, had I known what I was experiencing, it could have put me in a pathway of management. But because I didn't know and I was living completely ignorant to these emotional things that were occurring within myself, um, I, I wasn't in a place that I could manage it. And it was re- starting to reach a boiling point, even though everything on the exterior would say that I was completely fine. Okay. And then maybe uh, for the listener, because you mentioned that you were on a cover of a magazine, just give them some context for that as well. Sure. Yeah. So I started racing BMX when I was 12 years old. Um, It was after being removed from school for my behavior uh, in seventh grade. I actually found a BMX bike after that because my brother was already racing. And so I started racing at 12. Uh, By the time I was 18, I was endorsed by Fox Racing, Airwalk Shoes, Spy Sunglasses, companies that didn't sponsor um, amateurs were sp- sponsoring me, um, and I was also graced on the cover of the largest BMX racing magazine in the world, which was the BMXer magazine in 2002, my senior year in high school. Okay. And even with that, that's still... In, 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 it sounds like in many ways it compounded some of the, the mental health problems you were having at the time. Sure, yeah, because now you have the pressures of having to be great, right? And then you have the internal conversation of, I don't want to be great. I just want to be normal. I want to feel like everybody else. I want to be treated like everybody else. But I had no idea what everybody else was, right? Like, I can't speak for you without understanding who you are and what you experience and how you process reality, right? And so... This is where me having an internal dialogue and nothing outside of that really was one of the biggest mistakes that I was making in my life was, what's normal? I'm deciding that normal means you don't have to feel anything uncomfortable without ever asking you, are you ever uncomfortable? What kind of experiences do you have uh, with your mental health? Because mental health isn't something that only a small uh, segment of people experience. Mental health is our emotional wellness. Period. Every human has it. And where are we at with our mental health and how are we processing these emotions? Everybody deals with the rejection, anxiety, depression, sadness, maybe even uh, some self-harm thoughts. That might be one of the pockets where some people don't experience those. But we've all had these emotional things occur in our life. Um, But at this time, I don't believe that anybody else has that. And so as the social pressures rise, as my 
I don't want to call it stardom because I hate that word. As my relevance in the sport of BMX goes up, my mental health struggles also go up because of the pressures that come with that. Gotcha. And so how did, now moving out of your high school years, and how did those things continue to sort of compound from there? So from there, uh, here's what I say. When you're uncomfortable, you have to find a way to get comfortable. That's survival. As a human being, that is survival. When you're uncomfortable, how do you get comfortable? Survival is also when you get hungry, how do you feed yourself, right? We develop these behaviors to um, satisfy instinct, human instinct. And so... I'm reaching a boiling point where the discomfort that I, that I have is outweighing any times of comfort that I have. The only thing at my t- in my life at this time is that I have BMX. BMX is somewhat of an emotional release for me that's helping my mental health, but I give up on BMX right after the cover of that magazine. I wanted to take a computer job down in Southern California that was going to pay me six figures. The idea was at this time that the money and the achievements that would come through career could fix the brokenness inside of me. But when I gave up my bike, I had no idea that I was giving up what I tell people is one of two things every people, every person needs to keep a, a healthy mental wellness balance. One is an activity that connects us with like-minded individuals. We can, we can shrink that to one word, community. The community has to be empowering for self and others. The other thing that we need is a safe space to have a conversation. That's where we can divulge information about thoughts and feelings that we have without experiencing judgment. The only thing I have at this time is my community, BMX. I give that up, and now I'm really struggling. I gotta find some way to go from discomfort to comfort. I started partying, because that's what all the other kids were doing. Um, Weed and alcohol weren't really a good fix for me, but it was a way to create community. Uh, At that time, I had no idea that um, the addiction part of what I was about to go through wasn't going to be a choice, though. The only thing that was going to be a choice for me was to socialize uh, and party with everybody else, much like every other human does as they get into their college years. They start to party, drink, maybe try some drugs. Um, And I'd started to do the same things, but didn't find relief from my social anxiety and my mental health struggles until I found opioids. And that was really when I felt safety for the first time. Gotcha. Well, we are going to have to go into our break. When we come back, we'll continue talking about sort of your story and then the message that you'd want to give uh, to the listeners that are hearing our discussion now. Absolutely. You are listening to Capital Chat on KINY. Welcome back to Capital Chat. I am still your host, Jordan Lewis, and joining me still is Mandy Massey as well as Tony Hoffman. Now, Mandy, I want to hit you real quick Mm -hmm. because we want to make sure we talk about tickets and all those sorts of things for the event, and then we'll get back to our com- my conversation with Tony. Absolutely. Well, um, Jordan, as you know, this is the final chapter of the Glacier Valley Rotary's uh, Pillars of America Speaker Series, and we are so thankful to have Tony back. He was actually here in 2019, which was uh, the most recent Pillars of America Speaker Series prior to this year. Uh, so this is full circle for the Glacier Valley Rotarians to have Tony back. We brought him back due to his popularity of, and relevance of his story here in the community. Uh, So thank you for being here, Tony. Um, Also, I'd like to mention that we do have a much smaller venue this year. So uh, last week we had Lauren Sisler and we were not able to offer any tickets at the door, but we are so excited to announce that we do have 25 tickets available at the door. So listen up. If you know somebody who wants a ticket, I encourage you to get to the Elizabeth Paradovich Hall at 10 a.m. The program does not start until 11.15, but I 
do encourage you to get there straight up at 10 o'clock. The tickets are $35 each at the door only. Um, and, and you want to make sure you have time for this whole program. I mean, Tori's, uh, Tony's uh, program is so inspiring, powerful. There's also a nice lunch provided by Hanger on the Wharf, but it is a two-hour program, so you don't want to get there late or leave early. And again, this this program's sunsetting after uh, nearly 30 years. Um, we've had... Uh, I believe over 90 speakers come to Juno throughout this time. Uh, and, um, you know, there are so many other opportunities for Glacier Valley Rotarians to provide service and community and in- inspire uh, the youth through other programs. And we're excited to bring you what's coming next. But um, if you've loved and adored this Pillar series over the years, um, don't miss the very last final chapter. Gotcha. Thank you, Mandy. Now, Tony, when you and I left off our conversation before the break, you you mean you hit the big word, you hit opioids. So why don't we continue our conversation from there? Sure. Yeah. Opioids were unique for me compared to other substances because they didn't enhance my anxiety. They didn't create paranoia. Um, They 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 created a a complete sense of comfort. And that's what I was looking for when I was younger was a place to be comfortable with myself and my feelings and something that could normalize or equalize my thoughts rather is is to kind of take them from kind of a a scary place and put them in a more relaxed, everything's going to be okay place. And that was opioids. And it came out of a prescription bottle. It wasn't heroin. It wasn't fentanyl. It was a, a safe spot. It was an orange bottle. They were prescribed by a doctor. You could pick them up at a pharmacy. At that time in 2002, you know, we kind of had the idea that the stuff that came out of the orange bottle was not like the stuff that came from the streets. But as many other people found, uh, the opioids that come out of the orange bottle really are no different than the stuff that comes from the cartel. It's just regulated in dose and it's packaged differently. The addictive properties are still there and that's exactly what happened. Started using the opioids as a, as a way to manage my, my emotional being and regulate myself, uh, but soon followed the addiction. And once the addiction started, that was when the behavior started to really cha- uh, change. And, and, and the things that I would become willing to do uh, on the other side of that addiction uh, were ultimately what cost me my freedom. And I was going to say, and speaking on that, I mean, I still have uh, some details of your biography pulled up. Uh, about two years after 2002, you actually committed a, a home invasion. Yeah. Yeah. It was a home invasion robbery. Um, the biggest mistake that I made in my life, uh, we went into the home for the prescription medication that was in there, and uh, we knew that the prescription meds were in there because it was our best friend's family. Um, he was originally stealing the pill, pills from his mother and um, selling them to us for dirt cheap. And it's crazy how addiction works. You know, my one of my co-defendants is dead. has been dead for several years. The other co-defendant has been all over the national news right now. Uh, he's since relapsed. He had quite a few years of sobriety, but since relapsed, he did a whole string of robberies. He's since relapsed, and uh, he's been arrested 10 times in the last 30 days. And I don't know if you guys have gotten an opportunity to see the guy that had the 10 different mug shots over the last 30 days, um, but it's what addiction does, you know, and it's something that you don't just get away from and get to move on with your life. It's a daily decision to live to a different code of conduct and a different type of lifestyle to manage 
um, what comes with addiction because once the addiction starts, it's always capable of taking over your life the way it did the first time. And for me, fortunately, I was able to take some of these low points um, that came after the robbery because that was really the ultimately the biggest decision that I made that changed my life in, in, in such a way. It was the worst decision that I reg- and I regret it, um, but the homelessness in prison were really the darkest uh, times of my life that got me to a place where I don't ever want to experience that again. And not only that, I wanted to have purpose. And that's really why I'm here today is my purpose to try and help other people and uh, shine a light in people's lights, uh, life, specifically young people who are questioning themselves or may not have enough Uh, experience yet to manage their own realities is to give them parts of mine that may help them manage theirs. Gotcha. And now let's sort of talk about that journey of you getting to the point you are now sort of when did you start doing that transition to getting to the place where you were, you're able to help people like you are now? Sure. Yeah. I, I one had to have a vision. Um, that vision for me was led by a spiritual experience that happened on January 21st, 2007, the day before I was arrested and sentenced four and a half years in prison. Once I got to prison, I was able to be taken from the environment of using substances in the form of an addiction. So I couldn't stop even though I wanted to. Um, I was locked in a cell for 23 and a half hours a day and I didn't have access to substances. So I was able to detox and experience some level of sobriety while I was in there, which ultimately helped create a vision behind the faith that I had uh, experience and wanted to develop on. And from there, it really just came down to, uh, you know, how am I going to accomplish this vision of going to the Olympics, becoming a professional athlete, starting a nonprofit and being a speaker, um, and, and now uh, an owner of a drug and alcohol treatment center in Southern California, it really had to come down to my small behaviors. I had to really learn how to manage these things that like brushing my teeth, taking a shower, making my bed, um, a lot of decisions um, that are extremely uh, insignificant to a lot of people. They had to become significant for myself. And so that's what I did. I started there. I started with things that I knew I could manage. And I believed that those small decisions were wins. And they actually were. Because I've learned that the small decisions that we learn to execute at a high level over time determine the destination or places that we end up or the opportunities that we receive. So by the time I got out of prison, I knew how to manage a lot of really small things. I also started to learn to understand my emotional side, my emotional self. And then I went off into the world and I started putting myself out there, you know. Um, I became a professional athlete. That was probably the easier part just because I was so good on a bike previously that I was able to jump back on it and do what I do, you know. Um, Really, the biggest challenges were, you know, starting my nonprofit organization and building a speaking career that's, you know, on the road 250 days a year because you have to get people to believe you. Right. (laughs) And nobody believes anybody until they're actually doing it. And so along the way, there were people that did believe in me and give me those opportunities opportunities to hold the microphone or stand on a stage um, similar to the one that I'll be standing on tomorrow. Okay. I was say, I think it's very important that you acknowledge the, the importance of doing those small things. And as someone who, and I'm very, I'm always very open about this to sort of allow people to understand a bit more about me, even if I am kind of the anonymous newsman most of the time is, I mean, I'm someone who deals with episodic depression. And so those are, a lot of those small things are very important because it's when I notice I've stopped doing those things, I can be like, okay, I realize I'm in a situation where I need to start working on those things again to help get myself back to where I want to be. Yeah. And and here's the deal. I have had to learn that there's five things I need to do when my depression starts. I still need to get out of bed, make it brush my teeth, walk my dog, 
go to the gym and call somebody I know that loves me. As long as I do those five things consistently when I'm feeling depressed or when I'm feeling like I don't want to get out of bed, I know that my depression and the struggle that I'm in in that moment will subside. If I give in to uh, the thoughts that say stay in bed, don't walk the dog, don't go to the gym, I know that I'm actually feeding the depression. I'm feeding this discomfort and that will grow. And once that grows, um, I get to a place that's very dark. Fortunately for myself, staying in bed is now uncomfortable for me. It used to be very comfortable. It's now uncomfortable for me to stay in bed. So while I'm staying in bed, it scares the hell out of me because I know where it goes if I continue to feed that monster. Gotcha. Now, before we, we wrap up here, what would you want to tell someone who's listening that maybe not, may not be able to come to the show, but you want to leave them with sort of a message? Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, if you're struggling, if you're discontent, or if you're in a place where you're not happy, um, it's not a place that you have to be. Nobody deserves to be in that place. Um, nobody's a victim to the point that they're supposed to be in that place. The first thing is you got to ask for help. We don't manage life alone. We have to have the courage to raise our hand and find a safe space um, to talk about how we don't feel okay. And the second thing is you got to do the work. Nobody's going to come and save you from yourself. You have to do the work to save yourself. And along the way, when we do that and we have the courage to ask for help, we find the avenues of help and we find ourselves healing. And if I can do it, anybody can. All righty. Well, Mandy and Tony, I want to definitely like to thank you for coming on. I think this is a very good conversation, especially to have, I mean, I think this is one of the most serious conversations we've had early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Powerful. But I really, I really do want to thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank Appreciate you for it. having us. All righty. You've been listening to Capital Chat on KINY.